we've been going through the book of Hebrews and um, four weeks in a row I've been preaching on Hebrews chapter 11 and we've seen how week after week even though it's a kind of expository type of preaching it's very prophetic in the sense that God is speaking to our to our community and um, this morning is no exception to that I, I'm going to skip past a lot of what I was going to say this morning for the sake of time, but I really believe there's a part of this that is so, uh, so perfect, so timely for where we are, not just, you know, in the season, but in this very moment in this service. I want to read this for you. This is Hebrews chapter 11. And in verse 5, we read about this man named Enoch. It says that, by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those that earnestly seek him. I want to focus in on that Second part there, I'd love to talk to you about Enoch. <laughs> Maybe another time. This morning, I want to focus on that verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Everybody say that. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then the writer of Hebrews follows it with this. Because anyone who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. When I woke up this morning, before I had time to open my Bible, before I had time to think about this morning's service, before I had time to really think about anything, I heard the Lord speak very clearly in my spirit. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but sometimes for me, those moments between asleep and awake are some of the most clear moments of revelation. And this is what the Lord said to me. Fellowship is faith. What does that mean? I'm going to tell you what I think that means in a moment. But I want you to hear that again. Fellowship is faith. Now, I think this is an especially relevant subject for us here because, you know, those of you that might be visiting this morning, you're probably sitting there going, what in the world have I just stumbled into? I mean, this is not a normal church. These people are winning millions of people to the Lord every year. We're on track to see 5 million people come to Christ this year around the world. We're doing outreaches. We're working so hard. I mean, throughout the week, every single day, there was some massive thing going on in Orlando or around the world. Outreaches, crusades, school of evangelism, boot camp. And it's all so labor intensive. And very often when we talk about faith, we're talking about something that is action oriented. We heal the sick. We preach the gospel. We cast out devils. All of these things we do by faith. But there is a danger in a community like ours. You know what it is? The danger is that our relationship with God gets reduced to what we do for God. And in fact, this is the very thing that the writer to the Hebrews was working to counteract because the Jewish people came out of a religious tradition that emphasized what they did for God 
And very often they were taking pride in what they did for God. But actually what they did for God was void of a vibrant relationship with God. And so one of the things that the author of Hebrews is telling these Jewish believers that he's speaking to is that you can do all of the right things for God, but if you don't do it through faith, it's not pleasing to God. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? A life that is not just working for God and doing all the right things for God, but actually pleasing God through faith. What does that actually look like? Well, he tells us. It's fascinating. Listen to this. He says, he that cometh unto God must believe that he is, number one, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Let me read that again. He that cometh unto God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek God. Seek God. Seek God. Listen to those words. What does it mean to seek God? How do we seek something or someone? How do we look for someone who is invisible? For some of you here this morning, the idea of God probably seems like something that's farther away than the moon. And the idea of finding him seems like sheer fantasy. Some have even gotten offended with the obscurity of God. And they have determined in their heart that he doesn't exist or maybe he doesn't exist at all. There was a famous British philosopher named Bertrand Russell. He obviously didn't believe that God existed. But he was asked one time, what would you do if when you die you discover upon death that there really is a God. He said, I would ask God, I would say to the Almighty, why did you take such pains to hide yourself? And of course, that was meant to be sarcastic and hostile towards faith, but Bertrand Russell unknowingly had stumbled onto one of the greatest truths in Scripture. Actually, what he said is very biblical. Because Isaiah told us in Isaiah 45, 15, he said, Verily thou art a God that hidest thyself. In Psalms 18, 11, David says, He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. In 2 Chronicles 6, 1, it says, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. And maybe you say, well, that was just the Old Testament where God was hiding in obscurity. But no, when you come over into the New Testament, this is what you see. That Jesus, the Bible tells us that he often spoke in parables. And many people think that parables were like modern day sermon illustrations that were designed to elucidate some spiritual principle. They were intended to make the meaning of a message more understandable. But actually, it's the exact opposite. For instance, when Jesus taught on the parable of the sower and the seed, after he had finished teaching on the sower and the seed, he went back and had lunch with his disciples, and he explained the meaning of the parable that he had hidden from the crowds. And this is what Jesus said to his disciples. Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven. But to them that are on the outside, these things are done in parables. Why? So that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not understand. The parables were meant to cloak the real treasures and hide them from the casual inquirers. Why is that? There is a powerful lesson here that the real treasures, the real pearls, 
the real mysteries of the kingdom of heaven were not thrown out there like pearls before swine. They weren't given to the multitudes of thrill-seeking experience junkies. The real treasures were reserved for the ones who lived with Jesus, who ate with him, who served him every day, who loved him with their whole lives. These are the ones to whom he revealed the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. My friend, listen to me. The revelation of God's glory is so high, it's so deep, it's so beautiful, it's so wonderful, it's so terrible, it's so awesome that the fact that man has even the invitation to gaze upon the veiled form of God is a wonder greater than the creation of the universe itself. God is not some cheap prostitute who just gives himself to the the person who comes with the lowest bid. His deep waters are not for the casual inquirer looking for a one-night stand. He wants commitment. He wants devotion. He wants intimacy. He cloaks himself in darkness. He reserves the riches of his glory for those that would desire him more than life itself. And so the writer of Hebrews says, if you're going to come to God, seeking God, it starts like this. You've got to believe that he is. It's the conviction that God is. Now, how many of you say that you believe that God is? You believe that God exists? Okay. Now, before you get too proud of yourself for having met the first requirement, let me point something out. We read in Psalms 8, 4, the scripture says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And then in Psalms 10, the psalmist says that the wicked in his proud countenance does not seek God. And then in Psalm 14, 1, we hear a verse that's very often applied to atheists, which, which says, the fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. But listen, I want you to notice the way that verse is, is worded. It's very important. It doesn't say, the fool says with his mouth, there is no God. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, the, the atheist says with his mouth, there is no God. But I want to propose to you that there is a whole group of people that profess that they believe in God with their mouths. But in their hearts, they deny that they know him by the way that they live their lives. The church is full of what I call practical atheists or functional atheists. They affirm that they believe a set of presuppositions with which their life is not in alignment. If we really believe the things that we said that we believed, how would that change the way that we live? And moreover, if we really believe that God existed, if we really believe that this creator of the universe had made himself available to us and accessible to us, how many of us would treat him with the kind of flippant, lethargic, disinterested attitude that we do so often. So here's the first thing. He that cometh unto God must believe that he is. That conviction is settled deep in the heart. But here's the next thing. He must believe that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Now, here's the the caveat. The scripture doesn't actually say what the reward is for those that would diligently seek him. I want to just have a little thought experiment with you. Let's say that the scripture said that God will reward those who diligently seek him with $10 million. How many of you would find yourself suddenly praying a little bit more, fasting a little bit more, reading the word of God? You'd find yourself singing worship music all day long. You'd find yourself living in a very circumspect way because you want that reward. 
Now listen, the value of reward, the, the ability that a reward has to incentivize you is in direct proportion to your perceived value of that reward. Let me say that again. The ability that a reward has to incentivize you is in exact proportion to your perceived value of that reward. Let me give you an example. Let's say that we heard on the news that there was a dangerous felon, a violent criminal that had gotten loose in Orlando, and they were offering a bounty on his head of $25. How many of you would volunteer to go track that guy down? $25? I wouldn't have the energy to flip the channel on my TV for $25. But what if they said that there was a dangerous criminal on the loose in Orlando and the bounty on his head was $25 million? How many of you good old boys would get some of your buddies together and going to hunt that guy down no matter what it took? Because you see, the power a reward has to incentivize you is in exact proportion to your perceived value of that reward. So now... What is the reward for seeking God? Wait until I tell you what it is. And when I tell you what the reward is for seeking God, it's going to tell you a lot about the condition of your own heart. Are you ready for this? This is what the Lord told Abraham in Genesis 15.1. I am your exceedingly great reward. <laughs> Jeremiah 29.13 we have this amazing promise. I don't know if you saw this before. It's right in the Bible. It's a promise. This is what it said. And you will seek me and you will find me when you will search for me with all of your heart. So what do you do with the fact that you have now heard that the reward for seeking God is God himself? Is that reward incentive enough to you to cause you to pursue him and to seek him? Let me ask you a question. Is the reward of God himself more valuable to you than $25 million? I tell you what, when we talk about God, we're talking about the one who is more precious than silver. He is more costly than gold. He is more beautiful than diamonds. Nothing that we could desire in this world compares to him. This is a sobering revealer of our hearts because... If we are not motivated to seek God, then it means that either we don't believe that he is, and we don't believe that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, or we don't find the reward being offered, which is God himself, worth the trouble. Let me say that again. If we're not motivated to seek God, it means one of two things. Either we don't believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That's a problem. Or an even bigger problem is that we do believe he is, and we do believe that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, but we don't consider the reward of himself to be worth the trouble. And it's no wonder that such people cannot come unto God. If that promise of God's very person and presence is not enough of an incentive that makes us find the pursuit of God irresistible and drives us to our knees and causes us to pursue him relentlessly, that no matter what we profess with our lips, our hearts don't really desire him. So, 
Again, the, the writer of Hebrews flips the script. Instead of talking about how Enoch, for example, did everything right, he says that Enoch pleased God. And how does he know that he pleased God? Because, he says, that without faith it is impossible to please God. Let me say that the other way. He said that he knows that that Enoch did what he did by faith. Why? Because Enoch pleased God. And if Enoch pleased God, then we know that he had faith because without faith it is impossible to please God. Let me ask you a question. You know, especially my evangelists in this room, those that are working for the Lord, those that are laboring, those that are toiling, are you pursuing the presence of God with the same level of tenacity and faith with which you are pursuing souls and harvest and miracles and signs and wonders? Listen, if you really believe that he exists, if you really believe that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him, then your faith will translate directly into fellowship. The ones that pursue him are the ones that believe in him. The ones that invest their time in him are the ones that believe in him. The ones that set apart their hearts and their time and their worship and their prayer are the ones that really believe. If you're not doing that, I have to ask, do you really believe what you say you believe? Do you believe that he is? Do you believe that he's a rewarder? Do you want the reward of him himself? You'll seek me and you'll find me when you search for me with your whole heart. Would you stand to your feet? My time is gone this morning. I'm asking the altar team to come. I I feel like there is a moment here where the Lord is calling to many of our hearts, even even those of us that serve him faithfully, diligently, many of those of us that are working, laboring in the harvest field. But the Lord is asking you the question, am I more valuable to you than the crowds? Am I more precious to you than the millions of souls? Is my presence more valuable to you even than classes at boot camp? Some of us, you know, especially here, we're getting to the end of the boot camp. The students are about to go out on their initiation trip. We talk to you students for a moment. If any part of your heart at this point is out of alignment... And it's not pointed towards Christ, but it's pointed towards any other incentive. The incentive to look good, the incentive to feel accomplished, the incentive to somehow gratify some unmet need in your heart. If any of those things are what you're after, that little bit of miscalibration will break you down in the end. It's just like if you're aiming at the moon and you're one degree off, by the time you get thousands of miles away, it's more than a a centimeter or an inch, it's miles and miles and miles. We need to recalibrate our hearts this morning. Our fascination is Jesus. Our pursuit is Jesus. We love the souls. Do you know why we love the souls? Because he loves the souls. Remember that exchange that Jesus had with Peter after he rose from the dead and There's that whole exchange where they're sitting there on the beach and Peter caught this this big catch and and Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? And I think when he said, do you love me more than these, he was pointing to that big pile of fish that Peter had just caught. What he was saying is, Peter, do you love me more than the fruit? Do you love me more than the harvest? Do you love me more than the success? 
And you know what Peter said? He said, Lord, I, you know that I love you. And so Jesus said this. He said, then feed my sheep. Notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say, Peter, do you love my sheep? Feed my sheep. He said, Peter, do you love me? Because you see, our ministry to the sheep is intended to be motivated primarily by our love for him, not for our love for them. Yeah, we love them. We love the world. But we love the world because he loves the world and because our hearts are connected to his. And so if there is any part of you, this is not to condemn, this is not to browbeat, but if there's any part of your heart that's out of alignment, it's time to refocus. It's time to recalibrate right now. Come on, lift your hands. And just begin to worship and sing the words to that song as a recalibration of your heart. Lord, nothing else, nothing else, nothing else will do, Lord. I just want you. Come on, let's sing it. I just want you. Sing that out. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else will do. I just want you. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else will do. I just want you. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else will do. I just want you. going to begin to worship again, but I want to open up these altars right now. If you need ministry, if you want someone to pray with you, our, our team, our ministry team is waiting here for you in the front. If you need healing in your body, if you need deliverance, if there's something going on in your family, you need somebody to link arms with you and agree with you in faith, I want you to get out of your seat and come right now. Some of you, even as I've been preaching this morning, you've realized that there's something out of order in your heart. And there's a, there's a radical recalibration that's needed to bring you back in alignment, seeking God. If that's you, I want to invite you to come and just prostrate yourself here at this altar before the Lord. Ask Him to set it right inside of you. Ask Him to refocus you on His presence. He's faithful. He's good. He's kind. And for the rest of us, can we just lift our hearts to the Lord one more time and just sing that to the Lord? Sing.